You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for November 7th, 2021, All Saints Day. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Dr. Justin Crisp. It's based on the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Last week in the 8th grade confirmation class, the students and I read the Sermon on the Mount according to the Gospel of St. Luke. The Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says things like, Blessed are you who are poor, and woe to you who are rich. Ouch, I said, because I consider myself to be in that rich category, especially relative to the vast majority of the world's population and in history. Ouch, woe to you who are rich. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Double ouch, I said. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. I mean, that's terrible advice on a day like today, right? In New England. Oh my goodness. Ouch, ouch, ouch. But to my delight, the kids took Jesus really seriously. Seriously enough to say, this man sounds like he's out of his mind. I'll tell you actually exactly what they said. These are verbatim quotes of Jesus' command to love your enemies in particular, one eighth grader exclaimed, that's impossible. To which another replied, no, it's possible, just stupid. (laughs) And I have to say, I agree with him to a point. And I said so. The way of life which our Lord enjoins us to live is crazy. It sounds as though he is out of his mind. The abdication of self-defense, the absolute command to love one's enemies, the exaltation of the least, the last, and the lost, and all the rest that comes in that great summary of Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, it all sounds like a recipe for disaster. And I told the eighth graders, in Jesus' life, it was a recipe for disaster. He was crucified for all of his good intentions. And it's disaster before there was resurrection. Which is why what we're beginning to talk about today, having talked about his teaching last week, is his death on the cross. Totally crazy what Jesus says. Maybe even stupid, I said. Unless Christianity happens to be true. The Book of Wisdom, the Old Testament apocryphal book from which our first lesson this morning is taken and which is assigned for each and every All Saints Day in the Episcopal Church, is about exactly this. Written in the middle of the first century BC, under the influence of Jewish thinkers who were combining Jewish thought with Greek philosophies like Platonism, in much the same way as early Christians would during the first centuries of the church. The Book of Wisdom is about how a life of obedience to God will look crazy to people who aren't trying to live. that it will look crazy to people who do not believe in it. 
And it probably is crazy, wisdom says, unless one believes that God is real and that eternal life is too. This is the thesis statement of the wisdom of Solomon, this ancient first century BC book. Before this morning's reading begins, and this morning's reading is beautiful, isn't it? The souls of the righteous are in the hand of God and no torment will ever touch them. I used to, when I was a scholarship singer at the cathedral in Knoxville, Tennessee, before, when I was a college student, we used to sing a glorious anthem about this, and it just soared and soared and soared. Yeah, the, the, the composer adjusted some of the words, uh, to some of the translation to say, they will shine like stars, a golden galaxy. I mean, it's just, it's just gorgeous, right? But the secret to understanding it is what happens in the paragraphs just before it. There, the author of wisdom is pantomiming the perspective of those he believes are foolish. And the fool, the author says, says something like this. And I'm quoting from the Book of Wisdom. Come, therefore, let us enjoy the good things that exist. Let us crown ourselves with rosebuds before they wither. Let us oppress the righteous poor man. Let us not spare the widow or regard the gray hairs of the aged. But let our might be our law of right. For what is weak proves itself to be useless. Let us lie in wait for the righteous man because he is inconvenient to us, because his manner of life is unlike that of others, and his ways are strange." End quote. This is what the author of Wisdom is responding to when he says, as Jenny read beautifully this morning, the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and no torment will ever touch them. The full text of the preceding section where the foolish say, let our might be our law of right and let us lie and wait for the righteous man, makes clear that the righteous man here is the so-called suffering servant depicted in the writings of the prophet Isaiah, of whom Isaiah writes, he was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with grief. Words and images which Christians have long associated with Jesus and with which many of us are familiar from Handel's great oratorio, Messiah. Of such ones as these, the author of wisdom says, in the eyes of the foolish, they seem to have died. And their departure was thought to be a disaster. And they're going from us to be their destruction, but they are at peace. For though in the sight of others they were punished, their hope is full of immortality. I have to say, I need these words to be true. Like, need it in my bones, in my gut. I need these words to be true. For one thing, I needed God to provide a horizon wider than this life only, in which God can make good the lives of those whose lives go terribly, terribly wrong, and not just wrong in little ways, I mean wrong in big ways. People whose lives go wrong in ways that make it hard to think that life was good to them on the whole, that it was better for them to have lived than not to have been born. 
people whose lives go wrong in ways that the late Episcopal theologian Marilyn Adams said ruin their lives. Things like when kids die of cancer before they turn 10, or when prisoners of war suffer pain which interrupts their consciousness, it's world-ending pain. I need it to be true that the souls of these righteous are in the hand of God and no torment will ever touch them again. Because otherwise, honestly, I cannot stomach believing in this God. I don't even care if he's real. If that's not true, if they're not in his hand, screw that God. I couldn't stomach to follow him, even if he existed. Could you? A God who made the world in this way and yet did not find some way to help them. I couldn't stomach believing in that God. Not to mention entertain the crazy things God asks of us. I told the eighth graders last week that I had in fact staked my life my life and my aspirations on the gamble that God was real, that eternal life was real, and that doing things like loving your enemies is the secret to living a fulfilling life. I told them not to feel any pressure to do so themselves, just because I had, but I wanted for them to know that I had. Not because I perfectly fulfill this aspiration, <laughs> I do not. But I have chosen to aspire to this thing, and so chosen not to aspire to many others. I told him I staked my life on believing that loving your enemies is the secret to human existence. And I said that it is a gamble, because it is. It goes against every single grain of self-preservative instinct in our human natures, doesn't it? Loving our enemies. And I'm not talking about loving little enemies, like the guy who cuts you off on a merit. I mean loving big enemies. People who have caused you egregious harm or who are a threat to you. Now, loving your enemies is complicated. I don't believe that loving your enemies means caving to them every time or letting yourself be steamrolled by them. I, I don't think that's what loving your enemy means. I think that it means always desiring their good, always wanting them to flourish, or at least wanting to want them to flourish. It means never letting your enemy become your adversary. And I think it makes absolutely no sense to live this way unless God is in the business of raising the dead. I really don't. Unless in death life is changed, not ended. Maybe it makes sense to love some little enemies, but not to love big ones, and not to love them without exception, because Jesus makes no exceptions. It's just love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, right? Period. Full stop. No disclaimers. That's it. And it makes no sense to live this way 
in the absolute and unconditional way Christ demands and models it, unless All Saints Day and what it celebrates is true. I suspect that at the bottom of most moral decisions, whether it's the decision for, you know, whether I'm going to cut off the guy in the left-hand lane on the merit, or whether it's a decision of the kind, like whether to take the place of a father who has a wife and kids in a concentration camp in Auschwitz in Germany, as the Polish monk Maximilian Kolbe did in July of 41. Whether it's of the cutting off somebody in the other lane or taking someone's place in a concentration camp kind, at the root of all these choices is a one fundamental primal choice between the will to power and the renunciation thereof. Between the world of retaliation, some people would say the world of greatness, and the world of love. And the thing about Jesus is he commands us to choose the latter every single time, even if it kills us. And it killed him. And it killed people like Maximilian Kolbe. And it killed thousands of saints whom we celebrate today. Each and every time, renunciation and love. And I think this is perhaps why only Christianity and no other religion asks its adherents to love their enemies. Did you guys know that? No other religion enjoins its adherents to love their enemies, not even the other Abrahamic ones. Only Christians are told to do this. Only Christians are told not to just take the high road, but the hard one to pray reform for abusers and salvations for suicide bombers, to refuse ever to demonize their political opponents, and to spend outrageous amounts of time considering the merits even of opinions they find odious or dangerous, to smile at those who would torture them and to be gracious to their bullies. Only Christians are told to do this. Because the gamble of Christians is that life emerges out of death. Sometimes, oftentimes, in this life, and always, every time, at the end of it. Which is what gives Christians the courage to live a life that looks as much like God's, as much like Jesus's, as possible. By giving itself away no matter what and responding to life's violence, betrayals, disappointments, and losses without grievance or guns or guillotines, but with grace, even unto death. I say this not because I'm absolutely certain it's true. I say it because I am absolutely certain the stakes are this high. that Friedrich Nietzsche was right about at least one thing. Everything in the world hinges on whether or not God is real. That the church believes he is. 
and that the church prays for the dead on All Saints Day because the church believes the dead are alive with him. And that All Saints Day is meant to free you and to free me and, oh, I need it, to free us from our fear of dying so that we actually have a shot at living a real life. Which I think is impossible unless you know deep down that God is in the business. He was and is and ever shall be in the business of emptying every tomb he can find. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanon.org.